to the No Wild Podcast. Uh, this is where you'll learn a little bit more about Wyoming and hear some stories from some amazing Wyomingites. Uh, my name's Sam Shumway, and I'm joined by Tanya Johnson. Tanya, say hello. Hello. <laughs> we, uh, we are with AARP Wyoming. Today, uh, we're going to be talking to a really fascinating guest, um, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But before that, we want to take an opportunity to learn a little bit about Wyoming. And so the way that we do that is through a one-question quiz. And so, Tanya, you ready? I Okay, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> here's, here's the question. What is the state capital of Wyoming? It's Cheyenne. That would have been right if I asked what is the temporary state capital of Wyoming. So, so check this out. So uh, I learned something. So when I was researching for this question, so Cheyenne was originally established as the seat of the newly formed Wyoming territorial government in 1869. So Wyoming was a territory mm -hmm. and people are probably shaking their head and be like, what is he talking about? But oh, I think I, now that you're saying this, I think I know where you're going with this. So, 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 um, so in, in 1869, when we were established as territory, Cheyenne was established as the seat. In 1886, the territorial legislature authorized building a capital. So phase one of the capital, if you know anything about the capital, it was built in Cheyenne and um, and it was the, the capital when Wyoming was granted statehood in 1890. However, a clause in the first state constitution only established Cheyenne as the capital on a temporary basis, pending a statewide election. Oh, okay. Can I get, can I guess what the other options might have been? Yeah, go for it. There, okay. there are three other there are three others that were on the ballot. Oh, okay. I was thinking there was only two, but I was born in Lander, and I think Lander was supposed to be it, or still could be it. Wow, Tanya, I'm impressed. <laughs> well, I was born so, there, so I've learned a few things. <laughs> okay, so in 1904, Casper Lander and Rock Springs had emerged as challengers to Cheyenne, or, or to Cheyenne as uh, as the state capital. Casper because it was a shipping center and Lander because it was sort of centrally located. <clears throat> and so they argued that they were better better picks for the state capital. Uh, when the election was held, Cheyenne received just over 40% of the votes, which was more than Lander, but short of the 50% majority mandated by the state constitution. So as the runner up, Lander still has a legal right to requ request a runoff election. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. So if you're in Lander and you're watching this or hearing this, um, you know, if you want, if you want, and Lander's beautiful, Lander would be mm -hmm. a great capital. So Absolutely. fun fact. So now if you're at a cocktail party and you can very <laughs> smugly be like, Hey, what's the capital of Wyoming? And then you actually, and you can tell the whole story about, about the uh, runoff election and how it's the temporary capital. Right. Wow. Good one. There you go. So with that, let's get to our guest and, and our guest today is the 2020 Andrus Award winner. And Tanya, tell us a little bit about what is the Andrus Award. Sure thing. So the Andrus Award, which is named after AARP's founder, Dr. Ethel Percy Andrus, recognizes individuals who are sharing their experiences, talents, and skills to enrich their communities in ways that are consistent with AARP's mission, vision, and commitment to volunteer service. Only one volunteer per state or a couple performing service together can receive the award each year, and the recipient must live in the awarding state. The award winner is required to be at least 50 years old, and the achievements, accomplishments, or service which on which the nomination is based must reflect AARP's vision and mission. Awesome. And so this year's Andrus Award winner, um, which is a really, really significant award. It's the highest award that we give. And I'll tell you this, too. 
uh, it came to our two finalists were our guest today and the first lady for a lot of the work that she did around uh, her hunger, her hunger initiative. Mm -hmm. But um, our guest today, and, and if you want to pull him up on the screen, uh, is our 2020 Andrews Award winner, Don Cushman. Don, how are you? <laughs> Doing very well, thank you very much. And I learned something about the capital of Wyoming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, what do you think? Do you think the capital should be in Lander or should it be in Cheyenne? Uh, I'm thinking it'd be a lot of money to move that building. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, especially since we just renovated it, right? Yeah. Well, didn't they just do that recently. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, Don, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I, like I said, I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since I read your, your bio. So uh, we want to we want to talk to you about kind of some of the things you've done as far as volunteering in the state, some of the amazing things that you've done. Uh, but let's go back to kind of where are you from originally and, and uh, kind of what brought you to Wyoming? Well, I grew up in the cornfields of West Central Indiana. Um, farm boy, we, um, this is pre-television. <laughs> I, I saw a photograph recently of a of a black rotary dial telephone and said, if you used one of these, stay home because you're in the <laughs> <highest> category. <laughs> so anyway, we uh, prior, prior to that, we even had the old crank telephone on the wall with a dry cell sitting in the uh, uh, window sill right below it to help uh, 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 provide the, the, the electricity needed to, to, to crank to call central to place our phone calls. Uh, we had a, a rural public school, all 12 grades in the same building, no kindergarten. Uh, there were approximately, uh, there were 36 of us starting in the first grade, and there were about uh, uh, 26 of us at graduation. Approximately 20 of us had been together all those 12 years. Very different from uh, the situation even there today, but certainly uh, from back here. So I um, went from there to, spent one semester in college at Arizona State University. And after that semester, I transferred uh, to Indiana, back, back to the state of Indiana where I had lived and went to Indiana University to the uh, School of Music. Uh, today it's known as the Jacob School of Music, but in those days it was just the Indiana University School of Music and uh, got my bachelor's and master's there. And after uh, uh, about three years of public school teaching uh, and seeing other things that were happening technologically, and I had been involved in, uh, oh, some electricity and some electronics things when I was in high school. Uh, I was eager to get an amateur radio license, when I, which I didn't do until... Uh, after I had even taught for a couple of years. Um, I went into the field of uh, instructional uh, technology. I uh, got my doctorate in uh, uh, the Division of uh, Instructional Systems Technology at Indiana University, part of the School of Education, and uh, went back to a, a public school position that I had worked in for uh, one year at that point before I got a leave of absence to do my residency on campus. And then I... Uh, uh, went back to that school for another six years and then got a job at uh, Indiana Central University on the south side of Indianapolis, which was uh, which is now the University of Indianapolis. So I uh, uh, taught there for six years, earned a sabbatical leave, 
started looking into computers and education. That was the purpose of my sabbatical. Uh, Jackson, Wyoming was uh, a spot where some uh, very good things were being done. And I stopped here on my way to Oregon where statewide more things were being done. And even went to Alaska as part of that uh, study. Uh, John, can I can I jump in and interrupt you real quick and ask a couple of questions? Sure. So why music? <laughs> well, I, I'm, a, I'm a music lover and I'm a musician. And uh, I'll tell you this, you kind of, in a lot of ways, sort of live my dream. I've always said my dream job would be like a high school band teacher because um, <laughs> I love teaching and I love music and I played the trumpet and the French horn, and I played in bands and things like that. So why did you, why music? Did you grow up with music? Uh, always. Uh, matter of fact. Yeah. I saw that in the background. Yeah. This this was one of my mother's pieces of music. Wow. 50 cents for a piece of sheet music back in those days. And uh, I, I started, uh, started playing trumpet when I, well, I started piano before I started public school. I was about four or five years old, which is common for a lot of people to do that. And then they, then they quit somewhere along the line. Well, I quit every spring and then I had to restart again every fall because we, we played in the summer. We were farm boys and yeah. we got the more our obligations were on the farm. Uh, then we, uh, uh, I started trumpet in fourth grade and I played that through high school and did my bachelor's degree on trumpet. Uh, actually switching to baritone right at the end of that senior year in uh, yeah. college. And uh, baritone or euphonium horn, got my master's on the euphonium. And uh, I just bought a new euphonium a uh, little over a year ago. <laughs> uh, I had the first one for about 50 years. So, yeah, so here's, here's another question. Um, so, I, again, I was a trumpet player. I also, like I said, in my senior year in high school, I played the French horn. In my opinion, and I want to know your opinion, what is the best brass instrument? Euphonium. <laughs> Come on, Don. The French horn is so versatile. You can play these like mellow, beautiful tones, but then these big That's brass bell tones. Horn too. That's great too. Uh, <laughs> there are, uh, it takes a lot of skill to become really good on a French horn. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Trumpet takes a lot of practice to keep the chops up. Mm -hmm. And I'm more interested in getting out and doing things rather than sitting home practicing all the time. And I can, I can pick up my euphonium after not having played for two or three days and still get a pretty good sound and, and yeah. still play, go into a rehearsal. Don, you'll appreciate this. I was asked to play in this little brass quintet over Christmas a couple years ago, and I hadn't played the trumpet in 20 years, probably 15 years. And it, I had to practice every day for like two hours. I remembered the fingering, but to get your chops, get your armature back, you it 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 doesn't just come back. You are pinching a very sensitive muscle between steel and bone. Yeah. When you put that trumpet mouthpiece up and press that, and you have to build up that muscle just like a runner has to build up the lungs and the legs, and and a weightlifter has to build up all the muscles. Uh, you have to do the same thing with with a wind instrument. Seriously, clarinets yeah. have the same thing, mostly with the bottom lip. But yeah. Uh, well, I was just curious. So then you made that transition to computers uh, and, and talk about kind of that transition because you were teaching music. Why, why did you decide to quit teaching music in school? Well, uh, I uh, found a lot more variety in the uh, instructional technology end of things. Uh, always a different story with music. There's more. Oh, there's a lot of excitement. and I really enjoyed those kids. And uh, I still have contact with some of my students from back in the late 1960s. 
which is pretty amazing that, but of course the internet and email and texting and so on has, has allowed some of that to happen. Uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, on a day in, day out basis, uh, the instructional technology. And that was not just computers. I mean, this is a day of 16 millimeter movies. It's the day of videotapes, getting into, getting into videotapes, uh, trying to get computers in education. How can we uh, teach our student teachers to use a computer effectively in a classroom? Uh, those were the things that I was getting into. Uh, and this was 19, uh, well, just past 1980, uh, started 1977 through 1983 when I was on campus. And of course, uh, things have just really uh, exploded since then. Yeah. I did not leave music behind. Uh, in my work out here, uh, it sounds a little strange to a few people, but then they put it together and say, well, that makes sense. Uh, I became a, a ranger in Grand Teton National Park. I had been part of my travel, so I had really enjoyed visiting national parks throughout the United States. And uh, at one time, uh, all the official parks before the Alaska Lands Bill in 1980, which created a lot more. Uh, I had been in every national park in the United States. Now there are uh, more new ones since then. Uh, but uh, uh, I had and I had, a, had an attraction for uh, vacationing there, for the missions of the park, for the conservation ethic, uh, for the people I came in contact with. I became a ranger in Grand Teton and did that for 10 years. During so, Don, real, real quick question. Yes, sir. It seems like park rangers, are, especially in, in Grand Teton, would be kind of a coveted job, It'd be competitive to get that job. Did you just kind of show up and be like, hey, I want to be a park ranger? And they said, oh, yeah, you're hired. Or how, I mean, what does that process look like? It was it was a little bit uh, in between there. Yes, it is very competitive. competitive. Uh, and uh, uh, I walked up one day the, the summer before I became a, a, a seasonal park ranger. and. Uh, uh, talked to the volunteer supervisor, who was the uh, the, the the chief of uh, interpretation in the park, and I uh, uh, said to him, you know, I was interested in volunteering, and he said, "What do you do?" and and uh, he needed somebody who could do more than take pictures. Yes, of the audiovisual stuff, but and having produced some videotapes uh, back on campus, and having done uh, a number of things. Uh, with uh, with the photography, producing slideshows, doing editing, that sort of thing. He said, you know, I ran an ad in the Oregon Institute of Technology newsletter where my son is in college and also in the uh, Northwest region of the National Park Service newspaper this year, looking for somebody like you. And the total number of responses was zero. And here you just walk in out of the woods and saying, I'm here. <laughs> yeah. So that it was a bit of a serendipitous moment for both of us, you know, yeah. something I was very excited about. I lived in a historic cabin the rest of the summer, wow. uh, which was absolutely amazing. There was, uh, uh, there was running water. Uh, did we have electricity? Yes, we had electricity. I was able to plug in my, uh, Apple II Plus computer that I had with me at that point. Uh, I used uh, ice from a neighbor cabin where they had a they had a refrigerator. I didn't have a refrigerator. I put that in my cooler, and I used my Coleman camp stove in that in that uh, historic cabin. It is it still stands. Wow. So that was and I'd wake up in the morning. I'd look out there. would be a herd of two or three dozen elk walking by, and a, a marmot would run across the porch in the morning across the wood porch and wake me up. And I'd sit up in bed and I'd look out and I was looking straight up at the Grand Teton. Wow. And what year was that, Don? That was the summer of 1983. Okay. Yes. 
Okay. And so, and, and that's where you started as a ranger, as a park ranger. That's where I started. The next year I became, uh, I was volunteered the, the rest of that summer. Uh, and then I was uh, uh, a seasonal for the next year. Uh, and then the following year, I, I uh, it uh, morphed into a, uh, into a permanent job. Okay. And how many years did you do that? I was there 10 years. And then I went to the National Elk Refuge for 10 years and did virtually the same things with the National Elk Refuge, Elk Refuge, which butts up right against the south end of Grand Teton National Park. During that time, let's see, I went to the Elk Refuge in uh, 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 1995, uh, in the fall of 95. Prior to that, in 89, when I was still at the, um, um, at, at the at Grand Teton National Park, uh, another fellow and I had played in a brass quintet together. He was a tuba player. I was a trumpet player still in that quintet at that time. Mm-hmm. And we had thought how neat it would be if we had a band to play in. So we started a community band, and I was the conductor for the first 17 years. This is the first level of my uh, serious uh, volunteering after after half a summer in Grand Teton as a volunteer. Yeah. Uh, then uh, I was a volunteer conductor for about 17 years. Uh, we got on the bandwagon, fortunately got some early funding through the local committee for the Wyoming Centennial coming up in ni- uh, uh, 1990. Mm-hmm. We started in uh, April of 89 and part of the lasting legacy theme for uh, for the Wyoming Centennial. Uh, we got some funding to help buy some music and to buy some neckerchiefs so we looked like uh, a uniform band with a, a, a western theme cowboy hats and red yeah. hats. and uh, then the, the band is now uh, what are we 31 years old i believe wow how hard was it that first year to find musicians and then did you did you fill out a first second and third trumpet section and fill the whole thing or did you was it sort of a piece together here and there uh we didn't start it till we had a pretty good list of potential players. We had a we had a list of about seventy people in the county or in the nearby area that we thought uh, might be interested in that sort of thing, and we had twenty people show up. Which, okay. you, you know, as far as sending out uh, uh, survey letters or something and getting a response, that that, that percentage was pretty good. That, that, yeah, that's really good. And we still have about uh, four or five of those what we call first nighters, original people who are still wow. playing today and even though i was not playing at that well i was playing the brass quintet still but uh, i was conducting the group um we have uh, we have a number of people today who are are still with the group and of course we've added and and being a resort area such as jackson is uh people have come in for the winter they were going to ski for the winter well i happened to play a clarinet and i brought it with me well gee will you are you interested in the band well sure yeah. and so they're there for three or four months and then then they're gone uh, and a lot of people have passed through that way, but uh, they've still been good contributors to the group. And one fellow came in uh, the first night and he said, well, I haven't played this trumpet for 35 years. And it took, as, as you, mentioned, <laughs> yeah. you know, it takes a little while to get the chops back. They die in about yeah. five hours, you know, five measures. Yeah. And then you pick it up again, you play another 10 measures. And then uh, as time goes on, and I'll admit it was pretty rusty at first. A lot of people come in. Today, we've laid off this year ever since March the, the second yeah. week of March. And when we come back, uh, our conductor has had a few things uh, where we've, we've put together three or four virtual performances of one tune each, you know where we've had to keep our chops up a little bit. We put it together and he's edited things together. And that's, that's been good for the, uh, 
uh, for what's been going on with us. Well, that's so, like I said, I'm envious. Uh, you're, you're, you're doing something really with, with the band. That was a really cool thing. I think that you put together for Jackson and, and I'm impressed you did it. So now I want to talk about some of the other volunteer things you've done, whether it's a volunteer firefighter or the work that you've done with Habitat for Humanity. You retired, but you haven't slowed down at all, right? <laughs> I quoted to Tom Laycock in uh, an interview uh, a while back. Uh, I kind of have adopted Roger Federer's sinuses. Uh, he says, I don't consider what's left. I look at what's next. Yeah. And I, I think that's... Uh, uh, that that's a good attitude to have, and it's. it's uh, <clears throat> I've been asked by a local fellow, "What what keeps you going?" Well, I just haven't decided that I can't yet, yeah. uh, or that I should slow down, or something like this. And the body will gradually tell me a few things along the way. I'm sure that well, you shouldn't do that anymore, or you shouldn't do that, or you might uh, break something if <laughs> if you're not not as cautious if you're not as cautious as you were when you're climbing mountains. Uh, yeah. Your question, however, uh, I, I was a, a scoutmaster back in Indiana for seven years, uh, up to about the time I left there on the sabbatical to come out here. Uh, great experience uh, uh, weekly, uh, two or three times a week. I have uh, uh, email or text contact with my first Eagle Scout back there. Wow. And uh, another one who was in his group uh was two or three boys behind him. We had five Eagles one year and the, the other fellow just retired uh, from being a school superintendent there in Greencastle, Indiana. And, and he and I correspond or write or talk on the phone uh, fairly frequently ourselves. And, uh, you know, it's, it's fun to have, and some of the families that were, I was involved with at that time back there too. Uh, a couple of parents who were on the, uh, the troop committee uh, I'm in touch with them and uh, some of the other boys who are in the troop. You know, it's it's good to do this. We had we had some very good experiences there, and uh, it's uh, one of the things that I learned in scout leadership. You know, teach them, trust them, let them lead. Yeah, that's something that uh, that goes on, just carries on all the time. I do that at Habitat. Uh, we may have a new volunteer come in and they may be assigned to me because I have experience at what we're doing and uh, work along and then gradually I back off a little bit and then gradually that person's able to go out and do it on, on his or her own and we do that. So Don, how did you get first involved with, with Habitat? Uh, I was uh, a charter member of the, the Presbyterian Church of Jackson Hole when it started up in uh, 1994. And we had one afternoon that we went to one of the job sites there and uh, I was, I could see a need for that. Uh, felt that I, I wanted to, uh, uh, to, to do more of that. I was still working full-time at that point. Uh, but as, uh, shortly after I retired, well, actually it was at the time I retired was when Katrina was blowing through the South coast of the United States, uh, that hurricane. And uh, uh, about a year and a half later, there was a group from the Presbytery of Wyoming, the entire state. There were 11 of us who went down to Purlington, Mississippi. Um, and I had already done uh, a few gigs here in Jackson. Um, there were, there were some houses that, that I'd worked on there and I went with the group down there and I, uh, spent a great week. It was hot and humid in March. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. Uh, and when I came back, I thought, you know, there, there's a lot of need right here in my own backyard. I don't have to go across the country or across the world, even though, uh, Habitat does work well worldwide. It has a program called Global Village, and uh, 
I, I'm not saying I won't do that. We have groups here from Jackson who go particularly to Mexico and, and places in uh, Central America on builds down there. Uh, almost every year they have a project where they're taking a group down there. Uh, I, like I say, I've seen the need in uh, uh, our own backyard right here and uh, had a, a different pastor at one time who said, uh, after the congregation at prayer period, he said, come to the end of the services. Now let's put some muscle behind our prayers. Yeah. And uh, that was, that was meaningful to me. And I, it has been to a lot of other people too. And uh, this is, this is just one of the things, you know, uh, the St. John's Episcopal church here in town. I have a number of friends there. Uh, they have kicked in uh, lots of money. They, the, the housing situation in Jackson uh, uh, is uh, something that's been very high on their list of priorities of things to attend to in the community as part of their outreach. And they have kicked in tons of money. And almost every month they have a group of 15 or 20 people who show up on a Saturday to work there to volunteer. That wow. was pre-COVID because uh, we're now limiting to about four or five volunteers a day so we can keep ourselves spaced and we're not breathing on each other. Uh, Jackson has been hit very hard recently. Uh, in November, we had uh, just a touch over half the total vol uh, total number of COVID cases we've had since it broke out here in uh, in March, uh, and uh, December's on pace to to match that so far. And Don, um, from some ex limited experience, building is is manual labor. It's not easy. Uh, whether you're framing or you're flooring or you're putting on a roof. Um, how much, how involved are you with the, with the process? I mean, do you have like, are you, do you have a specialty? Are you doing, you know, is there some area that you focus on or how, how does that work? It's a new specialty every day, whatever, the need, <laughs> whatever the need is. Your specialty <laughs> is whatever the need is. <laughs> uh, we hire, uh, due to, uh, code regulations on, uh, the concrete work to be done for the foundation, sure. all that stuff. We have to hire the electrical work, even though I have wired the equivalent of two personal homes myself. Yeah. I can do that, but uh, we don't do electrical work. We don't do plumbing. We have to uh, hire plumbers for that. But And we hire a crane to come in to set the roof for us. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't get up on the roof, but I may be up on uh, two or three levels of scaffolding, putting siding on. Uh, I may be sitting in my camp chair, putting uh, the door hardware in place. Uh, the last couple of weeks, I've been putting the ledgers on the walls to support shelves and in the, in the the closets. Uh, as I say, and we don't do drywall. Uh, yeah. That, uh, but uh, the framing uh, comes to us uh, either in uh, stacks of raw two befores or in kits. Some we get uh, some of the work done in, in kits where there's one kit that this is this is such and such a wall. This is an exterior wall, or it's an interior wall, or it's an interior closet, or who knows what. Uh, and we just put the pieces together and uh, run the nail guns. Uh, if it was time to set up a wall, uh, unless it's a closet wall, uh, we have two to five or six or seven other people to help stand up a wall. And then we hold it in place while somebody levels it and make sure it's in place and we nail it down. Uh, we install windows. We install insulation. We uh, do it all. What, yeah, we paint. We, we stain the siding and then we put the siding uh, cut the siding on a nine and a half degree slope to go down the <laughs> the side, and I, I spend a lot of time with a saw with those sort of things, and yeah, still have I still play <laughs> oh, big win, still got all the fingers for the listeners. Yeah, Don Don held up his hands and proved that he still got ten fingers, and uh, so hey, um, so how many 
how many houses do you guys build typically in a year? Uh, we started out in early days without very many volunteers coming around, uh, one to two a year. Then they took on, they thought we could maybe do uh, with the same floor plan and so on. Uh, we're going to be able to do maybe four or five in one project. Uh, we haven't built, uh, We our last single family homes were built in uh, Alpine about four years ago. Uh, we've built uh, uh, two or three projects with duplexes. Uh, we built uh, two duplexes for four families in the Teton village. We built two and a half duplexes in cooperation with one of the housing uh, operations in Jackson. Uh, and uh, we built a total of five families. We built two and a half, and we built two and a half. Uh, so they were five families to take care of. Uh, we uh, have uh, presently on a project called Grove, which is for 24 families, six buildings of four families each. And uh, we are past midway in the last phase, uh, the last uh, third of the project of, of two buildings, eight families. We've got 16 families uh, living in buildings that we've already completed. And we hope to complete for these last eight families uh, by about Memorial Day. This is what we're hoping to be able to turn the keys over so so they can move in. And this is this is a really gratifying part of it. You, you work shoulder to shoulder with some of these people who are going to be homeowners who are so grateful uh, to have this opportunity. Uh, they may li be living in a place um, that is constantly moldy because of water leakage someplace. We have a pretty dry climate here, so uh, the humidity is not normally an issue, but they may have moldy floors or or who knows what. They may have leaky windows where uh, single single pane windows and, and uh, the, the wind, the winter wind whips right through there. We had uh, one single dad with two, uh, with uh, a set of twin boys and a, and a daughter all the, in high school who are literally living in a barn. Uh, it's kind of leaky. The cold air went through and they partitioned things off so the, so the daughter could have some privacy herself and the boys were, the twin boys were in a room with themselves and they got one of our houses. I mean, it's just tremendous to see the change in the life of these people. And, and they come back and they, they volunteer then some more on Habitat. Uh, one of the sons of uh, one of the first houses that I worked on, uh, when he's home from college, he comes in and helps us out. He's, he's still grateful. He's uh, paying ahead for some of the other people. You know, he just really enjoys that. And um, the, the single moms who, uh, whose eyes light up uh, when they, they see, see the progress and, oh, this is going to be my bedroom and my daughter's bedroom is going to be right up there. And, uh, it's, it's really gratifying for the, see these things take place. Yeah. That's so neat. Um, and, and, uh, how long have you, how long have you been doing Habitat for Humanity, Don? 15 years on a regular basis with a few years before that. It's, uh, I think right now I've done, uh, 45 buildings for 51 families. Now, how does that make sense? That's because we've had six families over the past 15 years who have moved out. They've, they've gone someplace else. We have rehabbed those buildings to make it like new for somebody else. Okay. Yeah. So, Don, uh, volunteer firefighter. Not a volunteer firefighter. Not a volunteer firefighter. When I was in Grand Teton National Park, I did videoing of uh, some of the 
the volunteer firefighters and the actual fires that they were working on and a couple of times on uh, what they call burn to learn where they had had an old building uh, that uh, was up for being destroyed and uh, uh, instead of taking down piece by piece they'd go out and set it fire and then they'd put it out then they'd start on fire again then they'd put it out and giving giving the firefighters uh, a lot of opportunity for uh, various things and to actually go inside with their uh, PPE firefighting equipment you know so they could go in and, and uh, experience a flashback and uh, know that they were going to come out okay but uh, still get a thrill in the process of doing it <laughs> a threatening thrill well um don it's been it's been a pleasure to have you with us uh, i want to do we're, we do we ask people three questions at the end of this and, and 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 we'll ask you those questions uh what's one thing that's still on your bucket list gee i really don't haven't maintained a bucket list because as time goes along i've done those things uh, I guess I always had the idea that someday I may not be able to do it, so I'd better do it now while I can. Um, I I have friends who say, "Oh, I want to go to Australia." I did that when I was forty years old. <laughs> I've been to Japan. I've been I've been on every continent. Uh, one one of the things that I would say was a bucket list item that I was able to accomplish in uh, two thousand fourteen was going to Antarctica. That was my seventh continent, and uh, wow. Um, so I, I don't have, uh, uh, today it's a matter of, uh, yes, there are places I have not been that I, I would like to see, or maybe I should say I would like to have seen earlier before situation, maybe political situation or military situation or something got very bad there, and it may not be a safe place to visit today. Uh, I've been in uh, 40 countries internationally. Uh, I, I've had good opportunities to do some of these things. Uh, by having taught school, uh, I had summers off for a long time. When I became a park ranger, I didn't have summers off. <laughs> uh, and it, was, it was more of a job. But since I've retired, uh, I've had, uh, I haven't had any holidays because every day is a holiday when you, when you retire. So I've been able to take an example. Uh, uh, for example, like I say, the, going to Antarctica was a good one for me. Um, that year, I literally went to the ends of the earth. I came back from there in uh, February and uh, uh, got myself uh, resituated a while, and I drove to Alaska that summer. So that was my yeah. time to Alaska, and I'll probably go back to Alaska again. As a matter of fact, uh, on that trip, I volunteered for Habitat in Anchorage for a week while I was there. Wow. Yeah. I, I like that approach. You don't, don't have a bucket list. Just uh, put things in the bucket and take them out and do it. I've, don't 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 wait around. That makes it a little tough for somebody who wants to buy me a Christmas present or something. Like well, if there's something I need, I buy it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next maybe, question. Maybe I better say that. <laughs> next question. What advice would you give to the younger you? Oh my goodness. Um, live it to the fullest. Uh, I I I hear adults my age saying, "Where has it gone?" I've heard people say that about the summer. Where did the summer go? I say, I spent it. I know where it's gone. And I say this to the youth, uh, go for the gusto. Uh, don't step on people. Uh, it's okay to, to use the uh, 
the offers you get from friends and the help that's around to do that without abusing people. Uh, make your own opportunities, uh, set your own goals, figure out ways to achieve them. Uh, that was one of the neat things about scouts that there were, you know, there's an echelon of, uh, of ranks that you can earn in scouts. You set your own goals, how far you want to go. And if you don't want to go too far, uh, I don't hold that against somebody. One of, one of my favorite neighbor kids uh, did not become an eagle because uh, something that uh, uh, bothered him at one point, he decided he wasn't going to go for that, but he got to the rank just below that. Uh, I still love the kid dearly and he's you know he's a father of three he's a grandparent now uh we still correspond regularly and uh you know do set your own goals and and achieve them and and uh i ho would hope that you get to the point where you you look back on several years behind you and uh don't regret the decisions you've made uh some of those decisions you may you may wish had had different outcomes, but at the time the decision you made was was the right one for you to make. Well, that's great, great advice. Last question, Don. What's the best part about living in Wyoming? I talked about teaching school before I moved here, before traveling, uh, uh, traveling to every state. Uh, having traveled in the summer. And in all of that travel, my favorite spot in the summer was right where I am now. Out of all the countries, all the states, everything I saw. Uh, I'm in Star Valley now, Jackson Hole, the town of Jackson, Grand Teton National Park, this little corner. The summers are absolutely spectacular. I grew up in the cornfields and the corn and the tomatoes back there are gorgeous because there's so much humidity that helps them in their growth. That's wonderful. And uh, I don't handle humidity well. I don't like that. Uh, winters are a little bit nasty here, but uh, I often tell a story of getting on the plane here at 10 below zero one morning, uh, being dressed and feeling very comfortable and getting off the plane about four or five hours later in Indianapolis at 27 above and not having enough clothes on because of the humidity. <laughs> uh, I, get, I get tired of moving snow. I, I move a lot of snow during the course of the winter. I spend a lot of hours doing that. Uh, but I, I still like uh, the, the climate is excellent and the opportunities. I love the wildlife, my goodness, and the natural resources in the way of Grand Teton and Yellowstone. When people come all, from all over the world to see these places, you know it's something special. And uh, then there's some little corners, some little uh, back roads someplace that you don't tell everybody else about that are just neat places to go and spend time and, and enjoy yourself. And, and uh, uh, Wyoming is, uh, is a land of opportunity in that particular way. Well, Don, uh, this has been a real treat. Normally, <clears throat> With our Andrus Award winner, we'll have a big banquet, a volunteer recognition banquet, where we'll bring you in and we bring a bunch of folks in and we everybody gives speeches and we present an award. Uh, I have the award. Um, it's it's right here. It's in this fancy box. It's, it says uh, AARP 2020 Andrus Award for Community Service, Don Cushman, Wyoming. We'll be sending that to you. Oh, great. Unfortunately, we were because of COVID, we aren't able to get a bunch of people together and have a, a banquet. But um, Don, this is, I, I, I was serious when I said I was looking forward to this conversation and this has been really wonderful. Um, so much, you've done so many good things 
And 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 I loved your comment about your bucket list. There's nothing in there. You've done everything you wanted to do, and that's that's really powerful. Um, and so, Don, thanks for thanks for joining us. Um, I'm going to give you the the last word as we as we end this. Well, I thank you very much. It was a, a, really a, a treat to meet you, Sam, and to to be a part of this and uh, uh, to, to get the recognition not just for me but also for the program of Habitat, which I think is one of the one of the most valuable programs uh, that uh, that you'll find any place. There are great things. I think the the uh, the first lady's program with the food bank and, and food that is extremely valuable and and obviously a great choice for her to be uh, one of the, the two finalists for this. Uh, there are so many community opportunities that need to be done. The, the big brother, big sister things. Uh, I would say anybody listening who doesn't have uh, a pet project at this point, uh, find one because uh, it's going to, to enrich in your life and certainly make some others a lot better. And uh, I would say go for it. Thanks again, Don. This will be on Facebook. You can find it on the AARP Wyoming's Facebook page. It'll also be on uh, your favorite podcast platform if you want to listen to this and and other episodes of the No Wyo AARP Wyoming podcast. So with that, until next time, we'll see you.